Well, uh, we're, we're in a, a series going through the book of Acts together, and uh, I, don't, I think we're in like week 10, it seems like we just started, but uh, we're, we're kind of going through this, and it's been, it's been fun. We've, we've just been stripping away all of the churchianity and getting back to the basics of uh, how, how the church began and what it is that we're supposed to be about. And uh, so it ended last, last week at the end of chapter 7 in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen it dies. He is the first Christian martyr. He is stoned to death. And uh, we, we just ended last week on that. Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to begin today. And it's actually the very first statement of Acts chapter 8 is a carryover from Acts chapter 7. There was never actually like numbers uh, when, when Luke wrote Acts. He just, we just kind of divided those things up. And so um, it says this in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. We're going to learn more about who Saul is. We're going to learn more about that he's the guy who, you know, fell off the horse and is now named Paul. And uh, he takes up the, much of the, uh, the rest of the book of Acts and wrote much of the New Testament. Now, all those letters that we read are from this guy who in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 said, and Saul approved of their killing him. Uh, very different type of person than what we read about and uh, who, who wrote much of the New Testament. It says, it goes on, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church of, in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, that word, Judea and Samaria, you may recall back in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus, right before he ascended into heaven, had some words that he had to speak, his final last words, and he actually mentions that term, Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what we're seeing here is that as the gospel is essentially um, pretty much has stayed within the confines of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 8, verse 1 is the very next time that we see that term, Judea and Samaria. And so as persecution is breaking out, Stephen is killed and great persecution spreads out, we see that the, the church and the gospel actually spreads out, is scattered, and is sown into Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus prophesied in Acts chapter 1, we, verse 8. We see that now in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And he continues, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, verse 3, but Saul later known as Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So people are being ripped from their homes. They're, they're being persecuted. They're being scattered and they're put into prison. Some are killed. Widespread persecution. Verse four, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. I want to, before we get into the heart of, of the scripture that we're going to talk about today, I want to just go over like four things that we see that I want you to notice about what, the, what, the, what, the, what it looks like when the gospel spreads into a city, into a new area. The first thing that we notice is this, the gospel comes in word and in deed. 
The gospel comes in word and in deed. Philip goes down to Samaria. He preaches that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not it. It's not just about, hey, I got this new idea. We got this new philosophy. We got this new spin on Judaism. You should listen to this and believe it. Actually, signs and wonders follow the word. So it comes in word and deed. Can I remind you that Christianity is not just about words only. This isn't just like a a teaching, an idea. This isn't a philosophy. This isn't a set of ethical Judeo-Christian values. This isn't good vibes that we're teaching. We're actually seeing that, that, that that the gospel goes forth in word and in deed, just like Jesus did. Jesus went from town to town, from village to village, teaching, and he also, signs and wonders followed. Good deeds, miracles followed the word. And the beauty of what we have now as we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is that we're not just blessed with knowledge of good things and this is what Jesus likes us to do and don't do these bad things and do these good things. We're actually blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit, which means that we can go pray for the sick, pray the prayer of faith and expect them to recover, that we can go and, and, and actually um, speak to injustices and, 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 that, and that the gospel should infiltrate and affect culture around it. That's the beauty, that it comes in word and in deed. The second thing we find is this, that the gospel overcomes racism. <laughs> I, I want you to understand this. We can kind of greed over it, and sometimes if you've read the Bible, you're just like, yeah, 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 I read it, read it, read it. I get it, I get it. When it says that Philip went down to Samaria to preach the gospel, um, I want you to understand this, and you may remember this from uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. We teach this, if you've been in church for a long time, that Samaritans and Jews had a long-standing hatred. They were not buddies, okay? So nobody, no Jew in their right mind just goes down to Samaria to preach the gospel, right? Jews and Samaritans had had a long-standing hatred between the two groups. Jews saw Samaritans as half-breeds. They were a mixed race between Jews and Gentiles. These two people had different, uh, they actually had different temples. They had different um, priesthoods, all of these different things. They did not get along, and there was a whole bunch of racism between these two groups of people. And so the, the Samaritans, just to kind of refresh your memory with a group of people where the disciples were with Jesus and they're like, hey, it wasn't going well. And they're like, hey, Jesus, do you want us to just call down fire from heaven and just burn them up? Just like, we don't just torch them. I mean, they're Samaritans, they're mixed breeds, they're half breeds. I mean, come on, like, we'll just, just say the word, we'll do it, right? We'll just call down, burn them all up. This is the same group of people that the disciples look at as less than. And this is the same group of people that now Philip is going to share the gospel with. Can I just remind you, this only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. This only, racism is, is broken down only through the miracle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the gospel can overcome their racism, do you think that maybe it could overcome ours? Listen, if racism could be legislated away, then we probably would have done it by now. If racism could be censored away by social media, then it probably would have happened by now. But you cannot legislate the heart. It is only the love of God that can change that. And so as long as we're waiting for a political movement to be our answer, may I remind you, we need a move of the Holy Spirit. Because one move, the Holy Spirit breaks down all racial divides and all of a sudden they found what they had in common rather than what had divided them. 
There was something about the gospel that overrode their normally scheduled program of racism. And all of a sudden, they're going into areas and loving on people that they had no business loving and had never loved before. There's something about the gospel that breaks down and overcomes racism. We see it here, and I pray that we see it on our day. Then we're not waiting for um, a political movement. We're waiting for a move of the Holy Spirit. Because even in the beginning, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, God was not interested in having a Jewish Christian church and a Samaritan Christian church. And be like, oh, you know, we'll just kind of do our thing. You both love Jesus, right? We'll have a second Baptist church and a first Baptist church, and then the Wesleyans, we'll keep them over there, and the Pentecostals in the back room, right? And we've got all these people. Listen, God never meant for a black church and a white church. He actually died for the church. Like, tribe, tongue, nation, you talk different, you look different than me. He died for all of it, one body in Christ. And the beauty of what we do even with communion is that we're celebrating the fact that we are all one body. You're all different people, come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, and we worship with people, believers in Jesus across the entire globe. Why? Because we're all in the same family. The gospel levels the playing field and strips away all of the things that we would love to, oh, you got blue eyes, I've got brown eyes, you have black skin, I have white skin, and Jesus is like, I love y'all. And we're like, we have to too? Yes, you do. The gospel overcomes racism. He goes on in verse 7, it says this, for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. The third thing is this, that the gospel brings freedom and healing. Freedom and healing. This verse is so important for us to realize that there are some things that um, you need physical healing for, and then there are some things that you need spiritual freedom from. And in a culture where today we like to convince ourselves and everyone else that only thing that exists is things that are physical, chemical, um, scientific, neurological. Philip was dealing with straight-up demonic spirits. And they're still around today. Mm. I mean, there's actually like some details in here that maybe make some of you uncomfortable because it says this in verse 7, for with shrieks, ha for with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. So the details of this make, may make you uncomfortable, um, and that's okay. But see, I think the reminder for each and every single one of us is that you are not just a clump of cells. You're not just a body that needs healing. You're not simply a living organism. You are created in the image and likeness of God, that you are made triune, that you are spirit, soul, and body. And Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven to save all of that. Not just your body so that you can, you know, oh, you don't have to have sickness. He didn't just die so that you could one day have your spirit rise and, and to live with eternity with him. But even in our soul, he came for all of it. All of it. That's the beauty of the gospel. That, that the, 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 the gospel comes, all of us need saving, right? That the gospel comes to bring freedom spiritually and healing physically. And the fourth thing is this, and I love this. It comes out of verse 8. It says this, so there was great joy in that city. Can I, can I just, like, that's just kind of like a one little line off, like one off sentence, but like there is so much packed into that. Like what does that mean? 
There was great joy in that city. I love, number four is this, that the gospel overflows with great joy wherever it goes. Notice that it doesn't say that there was great joy within the converts or Christians or the small group of people who loved Jesus in that city. It says that there was great joy in the city, which means that hopefully it would begin with the church. Hopefully we wouldn't be cantankerous, curmudgeons, judgmental people. Hopefully we'd be walking in so much joy that the people all around us in the city would say, there is something up with you. You're not normal because you should be miserable like me. And misery loves company, but there's something different. And whether I believe in Jesus or not, there is joy that happens in the city when the, when the gospel arrives. It's a, it's a beautiful thing of what happens when, when, when the gospel arrives. It's religion that brings gloom and shame and condemnation and guilt, but it's the real thing that, that radiates joy wherever it goes. That's what the gospel looks like. Just think of what we just did in like the Forbidford events this, this past weekend. Joy in the city looks like a bunch of insane new lifers staying to about six o'clock at night, putting together a skate ramp that they will literally never use. You saw those people. None of those people should ever be on a skateboard. <laughs> just telling you. I'm just telling you. You should have seen the Instagram post though of all, the, all, all these skaters. They're like, Bleepity bleep, awesome. This is bleeping bleep, bleepity bleep. And we're just like, oh gosh, you're welcome. Joy in the city. Joy in the city. Because a bunch of you were just like, I, I, got, I got all kinds of burn marks all over my body because I stayed there way too late to, to, to just love on our city and love of the youth of our city. Like that is joy in the city. What I'm saying is the gospel and the church and the influence of Jesus in a city should make a difference in the city. That people should take notice. Listen, if we shut our doors tomorrow, the, the city should mourn. And if many churches shut their doors tomorrow, would, would anybody even notice? I think that the joy in the city looks like the, uh, Bideford, the director of the Biddeford Food Pantry literally being moved to tears as he's just thanking a group of people from New Life just for... <laughs> reorganizing and deep cleaning the Biddeford Food Pantry for people who desperately need it. Join the city looks like families of new life going around Clifford Park, picking literally up bags of trash around the walkways of which they did not leave there. The reaction of the world to the move of God should be joy. It should be joy. And as we look at this, it just, it births in me. Like I have a vision of a church that doesn't simply talk about Jesus, but actually shows people Jesus with their deeds. The vision of a church who, who leads the way in being anti-racist and unites people rather than divides them or comes up with ways that they shouldn't be around others. I have a vision of a church that brings healing and freedom to people who are being beaten down by the devil. I have a vision of a church that, that isn't just willing to, even like what we did, uh, lease some space to the Biddeford School District during a pandemic year. I have a vision of a church that actually overflows with such a presence of joy that their community can't deny it. That is what joy in the city looks like. That's what the gospel looks like when it goes forth in a city. Come, Lord Jesus. Why don't you stand with me? I know I've, I, I went too long here for my little introduction. <clears throat> We're going to start reading in verse 9 because this kind of it shifts and goes into another area of this, uh, of this scripture. <clears throat> Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9. 
It says this, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that I thank you that you dress all the, the realities of life, even the things that, that we deal with on a regular basis. And I pray that as we get into your word today, I pray that we wouldn't leave this place the same and that you would prick our hearts. Lord, that we would realize that nothing compares to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thanks. So all this great stuff's happening, right? Like the, the church is, is, is flourishing. Racism is being obliterated, um, coming in word and deed and healing and deliverance. Great joy is just being spread in the city. And then all of a sudden, as the gospel is sown, Satan begins to sow the counterfeit. The whole like idea of like the weeds growing up alongside the good grain. Like as God begins to sow the word, Satan begins to, go, to, to sow the counterfeit. And we see this in verse 9. He says, for some time... A man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. I want you to understand this as we read this. We're like, okay, Simon the sorcerer. That's kind of what he's known as, Simon the sorcerer. Um, This is not David Copperfield. Um, This is not David Blaine, for those of you younger folk. He is um, not an illusionist. He's not doing sleight of hand and like nothing up my sleeves. He's not doing card tricks. This is not a magician. He is a sorcerer, which means that he's working in supernatural, demonic powers. This is the occult. This is witchcraft. This is the stuff that you're like, is that still happening? Yes, it is. This is is not like, uh, he's not a magician. He's not trying to trick people. Some of these things, these miracles that he's doing are the real deal. They are things, they are just not of God. They are of demonic powers. It goes on and says this, he boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. To which you would wonder, who called him the great power of God? He probably did. 
And they're like, yep, he is rightly called the great power of God. The, what you called yourself is true. Now, here's the reality. When it comes to false faith, false faith will magnify the person. False faith always magnifies the person. The demonic will always draw attention to itself. Now, many times when we talk about like um, Satan, you know, tempting us as believers, we, we, we think about like, oh, he's going to tempt me and trip me up so that I fall down, right? I got to stay away from uh, my, you know, lust. I got to stay away from uh, drugs. I got to stay away from all of these things. Why? Because Satan is always trying to tempt me. And when he tempts me, he's going to trip me up so that I fall down. Well, the problem is this, that the greatest fall is actually a fall up. The greatest fall is actually a fall of pride. And it looks, it looks a whole lot differently. Why? Because you don't actually fall down. You don't fall down because you've succumbed to some, you know, menial temptation. You actually fall up and you think you're better than, you're, than you truly are. The greatest fall is the fall of pride. And as we look throughout Scripture, as we look even at the basis of how Satan fell and how he tempted individuals all throughout Scripture, the, one of his greatest tactics is not to fall down. His greatest tactic is for us to fall up. We see this. How did Satan fall? Well, he was thrown down like a bolt of lightning, but how did he actually fall? He fell because he fell up. He said things like this, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, I'm going to be like God. In fact, I might even be better than him. I'll make myself God and God can serve me. So Satan falls like this. Look at how Satan, Satan, the very first temptation, right? Adam and Eve, what does he do? He says, no, he, did God really say that? I mean, surely he just knows that if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be like him. He's holding out on you. If you just, he knows, that's why he doesn't want you to do it because he knows that you're going to be just like him. It's, it's not that they fall down, it's that they fall up. That they think that they're better or they're something in the midst of serving God. It's not, now, here's the thing. Even, with, even when Satan goes and he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he says, I'll give you all the authority and splendor over the nations of the earth. This is the promise. Look, at, you just bow to me. You just come alongside me, and I'll give you all the authority. I'll give you all the splendor. I'll give you all this stuff so that you can puff yourself up. The temptation, more times than not, is not that we fall down and that we trip and that we fall. It's that we fall up through the sin of pride. So in your concern to not fall down, make sure you're not falling up. Now, how do we, how do we, know, how do we go about that? Humility, walking in humility, saying things like, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. <laughs> and you're, you're right. That's a very difficult thing to do because we're always all right. In fact, we've legislated that you just, everyone's right. Nobody's wrong ever for anything, anything. Literally in the face of all logical, rational argument, you're right. You do you. And so this is the, goes up, up against us because not only does false faith, false faith magnify the person, but true faith will magnify Jesus. True faith magnifies Jesus. Verse 12, we see this. It says, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So Simon does these miracles, and he's doing all of this kind of sorcery, and it led them to follow Simon. 
Philip preaches the gospel and performs miracles and it leads them to follow Jesus. Demons will always draw attention to themselves and the real thing will always draw attention to Jesus. That's how you know the difference. Who's being glorified here? Is it me or is it Jesus? Amen? All right, verse 13, he goes on. Simon even believes. It says this, Simon himself believed. He's like, all right, this, I, I, I believe this. It says that he was baptized even. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. In verse 18, it says this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was being given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, could you give me also the ability so that everyone that I, on whom I lay hands on, may receive the Holy Spirit? In other words, like, I, this is, I, I know how this works. You know, I, I've bought and sold miracle, miracles and, and these sorcery and spells and all this stuff. Like, if, could I do what you do in exchange for money? See, Simon had been converted in his spirit, but he hadn't allowed his mentality to change. You catch this? He, he, he believed in the gospel. He's like, yes, okay, Jesus is the son of God. Yes, okay, I'll get baptized. But he had failed to allow his, his, his mentality to change. He hadn't changed his mind. In other words, he was still trying to get that which was spiritual through his old way of life. He hadn't, he hadn't changed his mind. He hadn't submitted his will, his soul, his mind to the mind of Christ. He was like, yes, I believe. Yes, I'll get baptized, but I still want to be on the throne. And this is the very same challenge that we're faced with today, every single one of us. And you may be thinking, well, Pastor Justin, I'm not a magician. I can't even do card tricks. I'm let alone being a sorcerer. That is not me. See, but we can believe in Jesus and yet still not allow him to change our minds. We can, we can call him king of kings and yet still think that we get a vote. We, we, we can come to this place of saying, yes, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. I just think that you're doing things wrong and if you would just listen to me, I would like to change your mind rather than submitting and surrendering and say, Jesus, okay, let your word change mine. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? Repent. Again, we keep coming back to it. It's the I'm... I'm I'm wrong. And you're right. And I'm submitting my, myself to you. <laughs> it flies in, in, complete, in the complete face of our current culture right now. I know this. But this is, the, this is the pathway. Turn from your sin. Change your mind rather than thinking that we can change God's. And this isn't just my opinion. I mean, because get, buckle up. Because Peter responds to Simon in, um, well, I'll have just read it. He says in verse 20, Peter answered, may your money perish with you. The J.B. Phillips translation says this, to hell with you and your money. Yeah. I can say that because it's in, it's in the scripture. I didn't swear. <laughs> it says to hell with you and your money. 
That was fun. Um, and he goes, because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. And then he goes on. He's like, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. To which I read this and honestly, like I get it. I mean, Peter's pretty fired up about it. He's like, the hell with you and the money and all this kind of stuff. But like I read it, I'm like, I mean, what's really wrong with what it is that Simon is doing? I mean, he wants the Holy Spirit and he's willing to pay for it. And he doesn't know, like he's fresh to this thing. He's like, man, they're doing these miracle signs and wonders. And this is how I always got the, the power to be able to do things like that in the demonic. And so I'm going to now try to figure out how to, how to get in the natural what I want in the spiritual and it worked that way in the demonic, doesn't it now work that way with God? But the problem is that Simon thought of the Holy Spirit as a power to obtain rather than a person to know. Church, let, let, me, let me just, re this is the thing that is widespread in the, in, in the church today, in, American, in the American church, is that we, we begin to think that the Holy Spirit is a power to obtain a power to use, a power to wield rather than a person to know. And when we begin to think of the, of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity as a power, well, then we begin to think and act like Simon. Can I just remind you, we're not talking about a magic trick. We're talking about the person, the third person of the Trinity here. And he's acting like he can just purchase it? It? As if it's some sort of nominal power, this is why Peter is freaking out at him. Because the problem with Simon is he's trying to purchase something in the spiritual with something that is natural. He's essentially trying to operate in God's economy using the world's economy. And I think of this through and I'm like, you can read this and think, man, I've read this all week. What is up with Simon? I mean, this guy's an idiot. Like, are you kidding me, dude? Like, what a boneheaded move. Who tries to buy the Spirit of God? We do. We do. And I've never had anybody, so let me just be clear. I've never had anybody here come to me and be like, hey, could you, I mean, how much you need? You just, is that enough? You just lay your hands on me, do the little boo-da-boo, give me the Holy Spirit. I never had anyone do that. But I tell you what I have seen and what I do, what I'm tempted to do even in myself is to think that I can earn it. I can't buy it. I don't have enough money probably, but I certainly think that maybe even through my good deeds, I'm securing a spot. Why? Because who goes to heaven? Good people go to heaven. You know that. Bad people go to hell. So how do you get to heaven? Be good. Isn't that what we believe? Isn't that thing that kind of spins around, even for us as Christians, we think in our own lives, well, you know what, I think I'm good enough. I think I've, I've, I can kind of earn my way into heaven. And I wonder, I wonder if Peter was to speak to some of us today in America and we said, hey, you know what, I think I'm, I'm trying to earn my way and be good enough to get into heaven. I wonder if he would look at us and say, to hell with you and your goodness. You think you can earn something. You think you're good enough to earn this? <laughs> it's laughable, right? I mean, when we put it in this context, it's like, are you, are you serious? 
Like, you think you're good enough to earn something like that through what? Because you helped an old lady cross the street or you cleaned up a bit of her food pantry? You think that earns heaven? Please, that only comes through the gift, the undeserved grace of Jesus Christ, that he made a way where there was no way. There where there was no way. And we, 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 we play this game, and I, I, I like to look at Simon and be like, dude, you are such a screw-up. Just get out of here. But, but even in my own heart, even with our giving, we think sometimes that our tithe is buying us something. Listen, church, the tithe is the Lord's. You don't get extra credit when you give him what he deserves. We don't get into this place where I'm like, well, I'm trying to do good works to earn something. No, we do good works because I cannot help myself because of the grace that has been shown to me not to love other people through that. It's what breaks down racism. It's what breaks down all of these things. When we continue to realize the immense gravity of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives, we cannot help ourselves but have it spread joy to others. That's what it looks like when the gospel spreads. And so we operate in this kingdom of this world, but we are citizens of a higher kingdom. Let me illustrate this. Um, does anybody have any money? Like, a, I got, I'll just say I got a $20 in the first service. So you got a you know, five, 10. I didn't keep it. I didn't keep it. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Yes. Just one. I'll take the 20. Thank you. He gave me one or a 20. I was like, Please. Please. Okay. So let me explain this to you. This is kind of, we're talking about Simon trying to pay for things with money. If you actually look at your money and maybe you've got some in front of you, um, it's written in very small writing and it says this, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Let me read that again. This note, piece of paper, is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Now, what does that mean? Okay, it means this. Um, it means that um, money is the currency in the natural to get what we hope for. I can't eat this. I mean, I could, but it would probably wreak havoc on my digestive system. I, could, I can't eat this, but I can buy a, a burger with it. I can't drink this, but I can certainly buy something to drink. I can't drive this, but I could probably get an Uber for a very short period of time. That this essentially is, is the legal tender or evidence of things not seen. You catch that? Money is the currency or it is the substance of what I hope for. So if I want something after church, I, I have this as my currency. It is the very substance of the lunch that I hope to get after church. It's, it's the, the evidence of things unseen. I, I can't see the thing that I'm going to purchase, but once I, 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 I make that transfer with this currency, I get that which I hope for. Now, I can give this back to him, um, and I might, um, <laughs> because I'm operating in the spiritual. And what Simon was not getting is that he was trying to get in the spiritual what, what he was trying to use was a, a, a natural currency, now, money is the currency in the natural, but faith is the currency in the spiritual. Amen. So in the spiritual, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. And so we build up our faith to get us what money can't buy. And, and we say this thing, you know, you've, you've read this before. It's a kind of a saying that money can't buy you happiness. But what I find in practice is that we sure are trying to. 
We spend our days trying to get more of this stuff because we think that at the end of it, we're going to be able to buy more or better or bigger of what we have so that it will finally bring us what we hope for, only to realize that we always come up short and we're always disappointed because even more of this doesn't fix the problem that we really have. It can buy you food, it can buy you a burger, it can buy you a drink, but it can't actually buy you what it is that you desperately need in your life. And this is the, this is the sin of Simon because he's literally trying to use money, that uh, currency in the natural, rather than trying to use faith, which is our currency in the spiritual. The Spirit of Jesus said in Revelations chapter 3, verse 17, He was speaking to one of the churches. He says, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But do you not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. In other words, like you're, you're trying to get that which you can't, which money can't buy with a natural, with national currency. And I'm telling you, the only way you get that is through faith. And so the point is this. If Simon had changed his currency, he would have received the gift that he hoped for. Because it only comes through faith. It only comes through faith. There's a scripture here in uh, Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes about this. He says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So it's not so much that Simon was beyond repair. It was the fact that he was just using the wrong currency to get that which he hoped for. Why don't you stand with me? I'll give this back. Where is it? There you go. <laughs> I bet she did. <laughs> Peter uh, says to, to Simon essentially how to how to change his mind. He says, repent of this wickedness. Repent, repent, repent. He says, pray to the Lord in, in, in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Can I just remind you, church, that repentance is the pathway to freedom. Repentance is the currency. It's the pathway of cashing in and saying, I'm wrong and you're right. I, I, I'm giving you and surrendering and submitting to your will, I, I ask that you would give me yours and change me from the inside out. Change me from the inside out. And the saddest part of this story is the answer that Simon gives. Verse 24, Simon answers, pray to the Lord for me. Did you catch that? He's like, well, you got to repent and pray to the Lord that God will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. And Simon answers, would you, would you pray to the Lord for me? 
that I, that I don't have to suffer the consequences of what you just said. Simon was unwilling to humble himself, to repent, to change his currency, and to allow God to build faith in him and to change his mind. Can I remind you, church, I can bring you to the point of repentance, but I can't repent for you. I can bring you to the point of faith, but I can't believe for you. God has no grandchildren, right? Every single one of us has to come to this place of surrendering and submitting. And it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you're good enough and you can earn it. And you certainly can't buy it. It comes only through the grace of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he made a way that certainly there was no way for you. It's only when we come to that that we find the pathway to freedom in our life. And so I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you kind of, maybe this is the first time you've, you've, you've heard just the gospel presentation of like, this is, this is what Jesus came for, this is what he died for, and this is what is available to you, and you can't buy it. And if you thought you could be good enough, you're wrong. And if you've been trying to do that, you're wrong. It only comes through faith in Christ. Maybe you've been in the church for a while. Maybe you're kind of like Simon. You can relate to him. Like you're like, yeah, I, I came to faith in Jesus. I even got baptized. And I still have not yet changed my mind. I'm still the one in charge. I say that he is the king of kings, but I treat him like he's my president and I get a vote. And so Jesus, maybe all over this place, if maybe you're in that place right now as we, as we enter into some worship Maybe just between you and him, you just, maybe you just raise your hand between you and him and say, God, I'm, I'm hearing you right now and I know that I know that I know that I need more of you and less of me. And Jesus, I pray right now for each and every single one of us, whether we are first coming to faith in you or we've been in faith in you in a long, for a very long time, God, I pray that we would lay down our rights and lay down all of those things and, and realize that it is only through you that we can find the freedom that we desperately want and hope for. That it is faith that is the evidence of things not seen. And so Jesus, we repent for our sin, which are many. And I believe that you are the Son of God, that you came, that you died, that you rose from the dead, that you ascended into heaven so that I could have more and better life and it is not because I deserve it or because I've been good enough that I'm securing a place in heaven. It is literally only through the currency of faith, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen that I choose to submit myself and surrender to you, Jesus. Because I've been trying to do it on my own and I've done a piss poor job of it. Lord, we thank you that you are more than enough. I pray that freedom would reign in this place. I pray that for even for some of us in here, that today would be your independence day, that gone are the days where you have been slave to the law of sin and death, and that you are now a servant of the Most High King. He is the King of Kings. You don't get a vote, but I'll just tell you, he's the best king you'll ever have. And so Jesus, we lift you up and we worship you in this place. God, I pray that, that your Holy Spirit would fill those who are, who are maybe like Simon saying, I want this, I just don't know how to get it, Lord, I pray that a fresh wind would flow through them. Lord, I pray for a fresh wind of your Holy Spirit would flow through them, Lord. 
that they would know that they know that they know that you are near, that you are closer than a brother. And so, Lord, we thank you. We lift you up in this place, high above our name, that we wouldn't not just be concerned about falling down, that we wouldn't fall up. We submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, let's worship.